You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about structured credit, a very popular asset class, increasingly popular, I should say. And I'm very happy to announce that joining me today is Colin McBurnett, who's Senior Portfolio Manager at Angel Oak Capital Advisors. Colin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. Nice to be here. And we have a lot to talk about today. Structured credit, I mean, it's it's huge in all. I mean, it's increasingly a part of high net worth investor portfolios. And we also want to talk about the macro picture a little bit, but why don't we start with you and your background and what you do at Angel Oak? Sure. I'm the Senior Portfolio Manager here at Angel Oak Capital Advisors, based in Atlanta. Uh, I oversee all the residential mortgage credit investing that we do within our public funds complex, as well as within our, our separately managed account business and our hedge fund. Prior to Angel Oak, uh, I was at uh, Wachovia, working in their, their CMBS group. Uh, in the pre-crisis period or pre-global financial crisis period, uh, and then spent a few years in a in a distressed debt startup in Atlanta before joining Angel Oak in 2012. So let's see, you've been in this kind of credit world since before the financial crisis. Would you say how many market cycles? I guess let's time the not in years. How many total market credit market cycles have you been through? Sure, well, we're coming on 16 years now, um, and I guess it would depend on 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 what would you how you would define a cycle. Uh, you know, March 2020 on its own, uh, you know, felt like we we lived the full cycle from from peak to trough in a couple of week period. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everything, you know, heading up into the global financial crisis period through, and let's maybe we define the start of of, of QE um, as the beginning of a cycle, and, and, and quantitative easing as the official or quantitative tightening, excuse me, as the official end of that one. Uh, so you know, here we are, kind of heading towards uh, what is realistically the first uh, you know potential recession that the U.S. has faced. Uh, since the global financial crisis. Yeah, and it's interesting. You kind of alluded to this. How do we even define a cycle? Because to your point, it felt like 2020 was almost a, a, a one-year cycle, like, you know, the whole cycle in a year. There was the financial, you know, financial crisis, 2008, 2009. And to me, though, it almost feels like the macro cycle in credit and in inflation, it's arguably like... 40 years or something like in, in terms of if I really zoom out, I could say we've been deflationary for so long that even having a, a year or two of sustained higher inflation, it's like, you know, I'm 39. I'm like, I don't have the muscle memory to deal with this, right? I wasn't really, I wasn't around in the 70s. <laughs> Well, most people sitting in in the seat today making decisions have have never, especially in fixed income, have have never traded through or or managed money through a, a sustained bond bear market, uh, and we got that in twenty twelve or uh, twenty twenty two uh, for the first time in in most of our careers. You know, an interesting thing to stay on inflation for a second in interest rates. So, I have like two theories that are in tension inside me right now on inflation. And and the one theory is there are structural issues in our economy right now that point to higher inflation sticking around, you know, supply chain, tightness in the labor market, just just structural things that I don't think have gone away. I I know we're seeing disinflation starting to set in and I think that will play out. But personally, 
I don't really see disinflation, like things going back to the way they are. Like that's kind of the the near term, midterm picture. But I also see there's all these longer term trends that are deflationary, you know, in terms of uh, demographic trends, in terms of I don't think globalization is going to totally reverse itself, you know, innovation, technological efficiency. So it's like, even in myself, I can't decide which of these two kind of big picture things, these structural issues causing inflation to sustain or the really zoomed out kind of long-term thinking, I still feel like things are deflationary when I really zoom out far enough. What do you think? You know, we've had that debate a lot over the past few years, uh, you know, heading into, uh, let's say through 2019, I mean, there were a number of of things you could point to that were particularly disinflationary, uh, as you have a demographic trends in the U.S. slowing birth rates, things of that nature. Um, but I think one of the trends that's emerged and, and and shifted our thinking towards us being in, you know, call it a decade long um, inflationary environment. And that's not to say that we won't, you know, get some benefit from the data this year and you know and roll back towards the Fed's goal, perhaps giving them, you know, uh, uh, justification uh, to to take their foot off the gas pedal here. Uh, but we do think that number starts to trend higher again. Uh, and, and a big component of that is the labor force dynamics that exist, uh, especially with the conflict that we have now uh, in, in Europe uh, and kind of the shut, you know, whether it's, it's both changing demographics abroad as well as, you know, somewhat of a shutting off of the West from, uh, you know, from the, the labor force that had existed in Asia and, and, and in Russia uh, over the past several decades, I think it's going to have a pretty big impact on cost of labor and, and ultimately cost of goods and, and have a very inflationary impact on its own. Additionally, if you go back to the 1970s, you had the largest generation in, in history in the form of the baby boomers come home from, you know, from the war in Vietnam and then really start to, to kind of get down to it, if you will, that they began forming households at, you know, at rapid pace. Um, they, uh, they, they hit the, the kind of peak years when you, when you tend to get into that you know, time in your life when you start buying a house, you tend to be on an upward slope from an earnings perspective, you start adding leverage, typically in the form of a mortgage, but also in credit cards in other ways. Uh, and that tends to have a very stimulative inflationary impact on the economy. Uh, and you could draw a lot of corollaries to what we saw from a demographics perspective then to what we're seeing now with the millennial generation effectively kind of coming home from the war on COVID, if you will, entering that very same part of their lives. They are the largest generation uh, to come through this part of the curve. They're larger than the baby boomers. And you've got the leading edge of Gen Z not far behind them. Uh, and, and they're projected to be slightly larger or at least as large. And so I feel like you're going to push a lot, you know, a very large portion of the population through those kind of peak years for formation and productivity and leverage uh, over the next you know, two decades. And that I think is going to have a pretty inflationary impact uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of what it does to, to the US growth, U.S. growth picture. Well, that's really interesting. And to, to your point, to me, the demographic thing, again, it matters how far do you zoom out, I suppose. And I've heard that story, you know, with millennials, the largest wealth transfer in history, you know, coming of age, household formation, sounds like Gen Z might be even bigger. But one piece of this I don't understand is, okay, the birth rate is is 1.6. But I keep hearing each generation is bigger than the last. I'm like, well, how is that possible? Is it the case that, um, you know, there's like a 30 year lag or 40 year lag between the birth rate and this household formation that's happening when millennials are in their 30s? Or is it more that uh, immigration is filling more than filling in the gap? You know, a lot of good ways economically, right? 
So part of me feels like maybe this comes down to immigration. If, if you know, you look at the country's population, fast forward the next hundred years. Yeah. You know, the, there is definitely a lag from the, the birth rate to, to, to its impact. Uh, and that's definitely something that's notable. I think right now, uh, you know, the in immigration environment in the U.S. is such that that we're not bringing in anywhere near as many people uh, as we used to. Uh, and by you know, some economists argue nowhere near enough to make up for that decline in birth rate. And that does have I mean, a shrinking population is, is a definition for, uh, you know, for for a slowdown in growth. And, you know, that could create whether it's a Japan effect over time. Uh, it's definitely something that, that we're watching, though, that is, to your point, incredibly long term. Uh, and you've got to zoom pretty far out uh, to be, I think, focused on that impact. And you know, as long-term investors, uh, you know, we're something that we, we clearly think about. Uh, but you know, I would say that our focus from an investment perspective tends to be, uh, you know, much more nearsighted. Let's let the uh, endowment portfolio managers worry about demographic trends a hundred years ago, right? Like for for you, for me, for a listener, for an advisor, it's really the next 30 years. I guess we can call that long-term. We'll call it long. It's not very long-term, but we'll call it long-term. And on that note, so it sounds like in general, I'm hearing Angel Oak, you all believe that this higher inflation is going to stick around, right? There may be some disinflation, but we're probably not going to get back to you know 2% long-run inflation target indefinitely. Is that fair to say? We think we'll touch it, but we don't think we stay there. Understood. So on that note, I downloaded your 2023 market outlook, and there was a lot of interesting stuff in there. One section that really popped out at me, and it made the CMO and me smile. You know, I'm a marketing guy. Are bonds the new stocks? 60-40 to 40-60. And I just smiled because I'm like, this is the gauntlet being thrown down. So let's talk about this. This is a really big picture idea that the 60-40 is now 40-60. What do you mean by this? Sure. I, you know, with rates having with, with that, that you know, 40 plus year bull market for rates that you defined out of the gates and then you know with where rates were in in the post you know global financial or, or certainly post QE period uh, you know if you wanted it, you know, high risk premium stocks were the place to go get you know excess return and be able to keep up with whether it was spending goals on the endowment side or uh, you know or or saving for retirement and trying to achieve some goal you tended to have a relatively large allocation for stocks and and stocks certainly benefited handsomely from uh, from the lower rate environment uh, but when we were assessing the you know, the landscape looking forward after last year's bond bear market you got to the place where in, in high quality oftentimes investment rated cash investment grade rated cash flows uh, you were seeing yields uh, that looked a lot like equity returns were expected to be uh, in the high single digits, you know, from a total return perspective, uh, you know, possibly into the, the, the low double digits. Uh, and I think that sort of, of uh, return profile, when you're able to do so in, in bond form with, with a defined duration uh, and, and a seniority in cash flow versus, versus what you would find in the equity markets, uh, we thought would really stand out to investors, uh, to retail investors and institutional investors alike. And you start to see people shift dollars towards fixed income, uh, saying that, yeah, this premium is now enough for us to reallocate towards it. Uh, we don't have to take you know, the bottom of the capital structure risk across our portfolio to achieve our return targets. Uh, and I think out of the gates this year, we've started to see that looking at, you know, at anecdotal flows across different, uh, you know, different wealth platforms. You are seeing more of a shift 
towards uh, towards bonds or towards fixed income uh, than you are towards equity, at least as people are looking at redeploying uh, cash in the first quarter uh, so far of 2023. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, to, to me, we got to a certain point and maybe Japan illustrates that <laughs> maybe you never get to that point, but bonds are yielding, so, they, they were yielding such a low amount and fixed income felt to me like it was yielding such a low amount. I'm just like, where can this asset class really go? It feels like it's at a ceiling, you know, and I guess it can always go a little higher, but, but it has to be close to a ceiling. And, and in hindsight, that was just, it was kind of like a simple, obvious, almost a dumb thing. And it was true. And now, you know, with bond prices having fallen, interest rates are way higher. Well, that means the opportunity in fixed income and in structured credit, all these forms of credit, the opportunity is a lot more appealing now, right? It's just like when cap rates expand, it's like, great. You know, if I'm not selling this year, that's great. Absolutely. So this is teeing up maybe the next bull market or the potential for outsized returns or or maybe... Maybe a better way to put it is, uh, you know, to your argument, a better risk return profile for credit because now credit it's, it feels like credit's playing a little more offense when you're hearing about products and strategies returning nine, 10, 11, 12 percent. It's like, wow, this is what people used to talk about in the 70s, you know, with fixed income. And you think back to like PIMCO and some of these kind of legendary companies. And and all respect to Pimco, but you kind of look back and go, how much of their growth was just riding this incredible wave? You know, awesome wave. You know, picking the right wave that's worth a lot. But the market outlook it also referenced. So here's my other thing: it referenced the sixty forty, and you kind of flipped it and said it's the forty sixty. But are we still even living in that world? I'm biased. You know, the, I'm the host of the Alternative Investment Podcast. We go to all these industry conferences. And there's all this, you know, buzz with RIAs, with family offices, with, you know, fund managers. It's the 50, 30, 20 now, or, you know, whatever their model is. So, that you know, the idea is that the 60, 40 is dead. You know, I guess, how do you square that? Do you think it's kind of, are we in the, the are we in the decade of the alt now? Is there space for the 20? Is that kind of, is that kind of another way to state the 40, 60 thesis that, that you guys stated? I think so, because looking at, well, I guess two, two thoughts on that, on that statement. One is we see the same, we see the same trends. As you can imagine, as we go out and meet with, uh, with existing clients or, or prospective clients of ours, we've seen uh, a meaningful shift towards or an adoption of, of more alternative products within everyone's portfolio. Uh, I do think when thinking about alternative products, they're ultimately investing or expressing, you know, the same view that you're getting, whether it's in, in fixed income, you're either senior secured and some or or potentially unsecured but in a you know in a debt position within that capital structure or an equity position within that capital structure so uh you know i think it's it's a different way of of slicing that 40 60 if you will uh but ultimately I think you can map those alternative products back towards their ultimate their ultimate market in which they're trying to replicate understood okay and i want i want to get to some of your funds here in just a minute but you know, to, to to zoom out a little with this asset class, we're talking about structured credit, right? That's what your your firm is known for. So could you talk just a little bit, you know, to any listeners who aren't really aware, well, what's structured credit? What What is structured credit? And, you know, sort of broadly, why does it deserve a place in my portfolio if I'm a high net worth investor? 
Sure. So structured credit is uh, is six percent of U.S. fixed income, or non-government guaranteed structured credit is six percent of, of U.S. fixed income. Uh, the agency mortgage market, uh, which which kind of gets wrapped up in it, is the second largest and, and second most liquid market in the world behind U.S. Treasuries. But the the non-government guaranteed portion is about six percent of, of fixed income, and it's it's split relatively evenly between residential mortgage-backed securities, commercial mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities, and collateralized loan obligations. So it's a world of acronyms. Uh, but there, it offers- and are those are those broadly all the things that blew up in 2008, 2009? They are. Okay, they are. got it, got it. Uh, the, you know, the, the RMBS or the residential mortgage-backed security world um, was the center of, of that storm. Uh, there, we could, I could take you down a rabbit hole in terms of what happened from a ratings perspective and its impact on uh, bank capital ratios uh, and, and we effectively, in a period of a few months, going into the global financial crisis, the high yield bond market was about $750 billion of outstanding securities. The RMBS market alone saw a little over $2 trillion of, of bonds downgraded from AAA to junk in a matter of months. So if you could imagine creating out of thin air you know, a, a, a high yield market that's over three times, a new high yield market that's over three times the size of the existing one that has an incredible impact on prices and uh, and ultimately had a number of ripple on effects that uh, that clearly have taken us decades to, to repair. Uh, but yes, it is largely what, what blew up the world. Most people know about it from the movie, The Big Short, uh, is where they've, they've gotten most of their baseline knowledge for, uh, for U.S. structured credit. But um, U.S. structured credit has a lot of benefits uh, relative to other fixed income products that I think make it, it is the reason why you see it typically over allocated in institutional portfolios. Um, it is often under allocated. Well, in- hold on, hold on. I, I want to stop you there. It sounds like may, either that means that the smart money likes this asset class, or maybe it means the risk return profile kind of aligns more with institutional goals, or maybe both. Why, why would you say institutionals are kind of more? overweight so this class you tend to get compensated quite a bit more for the relative complexity of structured credit mm-hmm. and uh then then call it corporate credit at each point in the ratings spectrum so whether you're investing in triple a's single a's triple b's double b's you, you tend to always be compensated more for owning uh, structured credit than owning similarly rated corporate credit mm-hmm. uh, you also have credit enhancement, where you tend to have securities beneath you to absorb losses. So as opposed to, for example, a high yield security where the bond either pays off or it doesn't, um, and at which point you go into to some sort of, of workout with the uh, with the issuer uh, and in which you hope to recover all of your cash flow, but you may not. Uh, in structured credit, you tend to have securities underneath you that absorb, uh, absorb those losses. So it tends to be a much slower degradation of credit. Uh, than what you would see, uh, what you would see elsewhere. So I think it's the additional compensation helps a lot, uh, and you do get paid more. You get paid a liquidity premium, which I think is really why when you go back to to you know, kind of our impetus for launching um, our interval fund, which I know we'll talk about here in a little bit. Uh, part of that was that vehicle is tailor made to capture uh, those securities that do offer that additional liquidity premium. So it kind of magnifies what you're being compensated for comparable credit risk elsewhere in markets. And I think that's why we see institutional allocations towards it um, and and why we like it as an asset class. So it's a little bit more opaque. I mean, not really, but perception of it, it's a little bit more opaque. It's perceived as a little bit more complex. 
and it has an illiquidity premium. I mean, that's pretty much a recipe for for alts investing, right? That's the the, the the kind of the macro thesis on the IV portfolio, and to your point, these institutional investors. So, I mean, that that does kind of sound like sounds like my first suggestion. It's more that the smart money is saying we can put our capital to work, get a little, you know, get a little extra return for similar occupying a similar part of that risk return profile. That's the name of the game. So now I want to talk about one of your specific funds and I'm going to pull this up on my show notes here. And by the way, I'll make sure to also link to this fund in our show notes. Uh, But I wanted to ask about ASCIX specifically. So this is the Angel Oak Strategic Credit Fund. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about the strategy behind this specific fund? Sure. So this is uh, our strategic credit fund, which is an interval fund that we launched uh, at the end of 2017. Uh, within it, we invest in, in an attempt to, to maximize returns uh, across a full cycle in, in U.S. structured credit. Uh, we try to generate high income as a primary component of that investment strategy uh, and also seek uh, as a secondary component uh, principal appreciation. Okay. So where I guess where does this fit in? You know, if, if, I, if I'm an, a high net worth individual investor and I'm thinking, okay, I want to get more Maybe maybe I'm increasing my allocation to credit, or maybe even just within my allocation to credit. I want more income. I want more potential for capital appreciation. I want the opportunity for return. Um, is this fund actively managed? You know how how diversified is it? Would I be looking at, you know, I guess where where does this kind of a fund fit in with my overall, you know fixed income or or credit allocation. And I'll preface it with the disclaimer, neither of us are financial advisors, insert disclaimer here, et cetera, et cetera. So I think just to take even a, a step, call it one step back before I answer that specifically. And that's that I think retail investors tend to, and high net worth individuals, uh, tend to value liquidity or tend to overvalue the liquidity of their investments. Mm-hmm. And so you see all the time, uh, whether it's in, in, in specifically within retirement accounts, people own a lot of daily liquid strategies. Uh, and so you're paying for daily liquidity, even though you can't really, as, as, uh, as an owner of an IRA, you know, potentially uh, withdraw capital from that vehicle for upwards of 30 years, depending on your age and, and when you began investing. Uh, and so I personally think that you should be willing to lock that capital up or or get paid more for the duration of that capital, which is what institutions are so good at. They so you're, a- you're basically, you just, I mean, I think you nailed it with the IRA point. If this is in my taxable account and I have the liquidity because I might wake up tomorrow and want to buy a boat and okay, I'll liquidate this ETF and go buy a boat, fine. If it's in my IRA, then why should I pay a liquidity tax for the next 30 years when I don't even need the liquidity, it's I'm choosing to pay this tax. It's it's silly. Correct, and and and, and especially when in making you know fixed income investments, uh, you know if you if you're looking at holding an investment in a fund for you know a, the the duration of that fund. Now funds are open ended and, and they continue to roll, but if you're thinking about making a multi year investment, I think you should be paid for that multi year hold period. Um, and I think interval funds. Uh, and other illiquid investments, which you talk about on your podcast, enable you to do that. They enable managers to to hold less cash. Therefore, you know, concentrating the return stream that you're receiving and their their you know best ideas. Uh, it protects you against other investors uh, selling if they're not as convicted as you are, which is something that you see all the time occur uh, in in more liquid products. 
Uh, also, I think interval funds are really nice, uh, a really nice alternative relative to uh, to things like hedge funds and private equity vehicles, because you get some of the same regulatory uh, uh, framework that you find in, in open-ended and, and closed-ended mutual funds in terms of uh, limits around duration, limits around derivatives, things that kind of come out of left field, as it were, and often create permanent impairment uh, within investment vehicles. As, a, as an end user of an interval fund, you're protected uh, to a much greater degree uh, from those sorts of things in an interval fund structure, as opposed to uh, you know a traditional uh, LP uh, hedge fund like vehicle. Yeah, so that that makes sense. So essentially, the thesis with this this product and this asset class is: look, with your you know, depending on your portfolio and your portfolio goals, if you don't need the liquidity, don't pay the liquidity tax. Or maybe to flip that and state it in a more positive way, if you can afford the illiquidity. Go grab your illiquidity premium, right? I'm I'm all about like my whole investment philosophy is triple net returns. And and my thing is, I know I'm not the next Warren Buffett. You're not in the next Warren Buffett. Nobody, nobody's the next Warren Buffett. Or if maybe one person on earth is. Okay. But the point is, there are all sorts of easy little wins you can get just having just tax efficiency, right? Usually just by being tax efficient, you can lock in an extra hundred bips of return every year. But it's like, that's boring. So investors are like, well, that's boring though. I want to think I can pick the next Tesla. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'll take a boring win and then stack you know, win after win. So I think the idea that, that you're alluding to, it's the IB portfolio, is if you can get extra alpha, if you look at your overall portfolio, you know, if you take a, a very high net worth, ultra high net worth, family office type portfolio, within every asset class, if you don't need to be liquid, you can afford to go illiquid, if you can, you know, have high quality assets, high quality managers, that's a big if. But if you can, then you can get extra return. You can enhance returns in every single asset class in that portfolio, you know, according to like that Yale portfolio model. Would you agree with that? I would. I think you know, you made a couple of good points, which which one is is picking high quality managers. And I think once you do, and if you have conviction around uh, whether it's an, an asset class overall. There's been a lot of work done around the the compounding impact or uh, how the, the the impact of you're missing out on whether it's the top five days or the top ten days or the top twenty five days in markets. Uh, and I think if you're constantly as a uh, as an end user trading and trying to to get out in front of market moves, the likelihood that you make all of those days or are invested on all of those days that have such a large impact in the compounding effect of portfolios over over time becomes quite slim. So if you can be convicted around an asset class and, and be be convicted around a manager, uh, I think staying invested is is an incredibly important part of what you're uh, attempting to do, which is just to maximize or, or create triple net returns that are one tax efficient uh, and help you grow into a, a much more comfortable position over time. So uh, again, back to why we think seeding liquidity uh, is an appropriate part of certain por of, of people's portfolios. Uh, in that, if you don't need the money, if you if you're in an, a retirement account, and you can again, you already have that tax efficiency, and you don't have that need for liquidity. You should get paid in every way possible you can for that. I love that. To your point, so I've already I floated this idea on this program a couple of times. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep floating it probably. I can't help it. It's my it's my uh, brainchild for private equity fund. Okay, and so my thesis is this: illiquid private equity, private credit alternatives 
they have the potential to generate higher returns. You get paid that illiquidity premium, right? So, but even if they didn't, let's just pretend we're in an alternate world where illiquid products, liquid products had the same return profile. You pointed out the behavioral mistakes. They happen over and over and over on the liquid side to 90% of investors, a huge portion of investors fall into behavioral traps. So anyway, my product idea is it's a private equity fund with a 10-year lockup. We charge, I don't know, five, 10 basis points. We take your money and we invest it in the S&P and that's it. And we offer you no liquidity and we force you to stay illiquid. And it's actually a value add by not even giving you the option for liquidity. We help you avoid behavioral traps. What do you think? Is this, is this a winning idea? Well, so one of the things that I love about at least the, the way that you can manage an interval fund and the way that we approach it is that you can be a counter cyclical buyer. Mm. So we, in, in, in our product, we, we strive to manage it unlevered in, in the, the majority of market environments. Um, but because you're not having to manage towards, towards daily redemptions, nor are you facing any sort of pressure on the leverage side, when you get into environments where people start selling, where people start making bad decisions uh, or, or selling for non-fundamental reasons, they're selling because they don't want to see negative returns or, or they're, you know, they're just too nervous to continue to hold on, you can start buying. And you can do that either if you're raising capital successfully, you can do that through inflows, uh, you can rotate within your portfolio, or you can, you can borrow. Um, and again, the, the leverage allowance within interval funds is modest. Uh, but if you're able to go out and buy an additional 25% of assets, for example, um, from people that are, are selling at, you know, quote, the worst time to do so, you can really see an impact on returns uh, through that counter cyclical nature. Uh, and that's what I think is so elegant about the way that the vehicle is structured and uh, when managed properly gives you the ability to, to, to take your idea and, and, and kind of build on it and be buying from those that are selling it at, at times when markets are under stress. So we're doing the opposite. We're not just limiting our own behavioral mistakes. We're leveraging the behavioral mistakes of others to enhance return. And sorry, other people, if you're going to panic and a blip in the market and sell for 95 cents on the dollar and we can buy at a discount, we're going to do it, right? So it sounds like this fund is very actively managed. I guess, could you talk about the the management approach and you know the investment selection within the fund? Sure. So for all of the, the products that we manage on, on the liquid side, um, we're investment committee driven. Uh, we have uh, uh, an investment committee that consists of, of the senior portfolio managers across the firms and combination of them. Um, we each come from a different product specialty, whether that's residential mortgage credit or commercial mortgage credit or, um, or corporates um, or our CIO, uh, for example. And, and what we attempt to do uh, in investment committee is, is look at the macro environment and identify asset classes that have sustainable fundamentals. Uh, and we're big believers in giving ourselves a wide margin to be wrong, uh, meaning that we don't believe we can't appropriately predict pandemics or Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its impact on the world overall. Um, so we don't wanna have an investment thesis that, that rests on a, on a, on a razor's edge of, of having to be correct to or break one direction only uh, for it to be successful. So for us over the past several years, but but, we've become increasingly more convicted and raise our allocation to it across the platform. Uh, U.S. housing and specifically U.S. mortgage credit has really exhibited that, where you have a number of long-term sustainable fundamental trends uh, that we think will result in, in 
housing being quite stable and in mortgage credit performing very well on a fundamental basis uh, looking forward several years. Uh, and if we can identify those parts of the market that offer us uh, outsized returns backed by those fundamentals, uh, that tends to be where we deploy capital. If it's on the daily liquid side, uh, you know, we're going to, to be more up the capital structure with a wider variety of uh, or, or larger diversification of assets uh, into which we're investing. If it's in the interval fund, uh, we can invest at the point of the capital structure, whether that's senior, mezzanine, or junior, that we think maximizes our return potential in light of, of that, that kind of bandwidth to be wrong that we seek uh, and, and express a more concentrated view there. Because again, we're, we're less, you know, we don't have to manage towards the, the daily ins and outs uh, that you see in, in a traditional mutual fund. I mean, it almost sounds to me, it's probably a bad analogy or comparison, but almost like a macro hedge fund or something where you trust the manager and you want to give them the freedom to sort of t take advantage of inefficiencies and, you know, not total freedom, you know, as you point out, there's the regulatory framework to kind of constrain it somewhat, but then within that to sort of trust your investment committee, it sounds like you're identifying big trends and then, you know, you're creative and flexible enough that you can take advantage of the best opportunity rather than just, we're going to buy this one tiny little asset segment over and over and over because we have to, because that's our mandate. And what we, you know, what we, what we tell investors and what we've demonstrated over uh, over our life as a firm uh, is that we're not going to stray, you know, from our our core competency. You're not going to wake up and find a big currency trade or a big emerging market emerging markets trade, however cheap those may be, a big municipal bond trade. Those markets can exist on their own, and and we're not anybody's no we're not 100 of anybody's fixed income portfolio um so we're just a component within it whether it's fixed income or or, or alt portfolio and so we want to be delivering you know a um a, a, a return off of a reliable set of assumptions from that investor um and that's that we're going to be in u.s structured credit uh and in in, in corporate credit uh, but we're going to stay domestic and we're going to stay focused on our core competency and not great not go too far afield so it's not it's not a true unconstrained fund in that regard but we are going to move within uh our sandbox and uh you know and identify the best opportunities within it yeah honestly zooming out uh that's where i think a lot of the best thinking happens is within constraints right it's like maybe i don't know it's not a paradox exactly but you're talking about you stay in your core competency you stay in that mandate, but, but then you have some freedom within that. And I mean, honestly, I think that's where a lot of professionals, a lot of creative thinkers do their best work is not totally unconstrained, but given the set of constraints, where's the value right now? And I think it's interesting that this product and this strategy is in an interval fund wrapper because it, it, it seems like this kind of a strategy, this asset class could be in several different wrapper types, right? So you know, why the interval fund, why the, the intermittent liquidity, what is it about this product structure that really, you know, is, is optimized for the strategy within the fund? Well, as I, as I mentioned, when I, when I was walking through U.S. structured credit to begin with, is that structured credit is what it sounds like. It is structured. There are a number of, of what are called tranches or, or bonds that are issued off of each of the collateral pools. And those tranches have different, differing sizes, differing ratings, differing seniorities. Uh, versus one another, uh, and clearly the the typically the further up the capital structure you are, or the higher quality credit you're in, those tranches are larger, broader, sponsored, or liquid. Uh, but you may, from our perspective, 
Uh, you may not see losses occurring anywhere in the investment grade portion of the capital structure, and you may have to go all the way down near the bottom of the capital structure to identify securities towards the equity or, or single B, uh, where you start to see losses tick up in a bear case scenario. Uh, and so in, in a daily liquid strategy, you see a lot of structured credit. We manage a lot of structured credit in daily liquid, but it tends to have a more senior part of the capital structure skew to it. Uh, whereas in the interval fund, um, we can focus on those securities where, again, we're seeking to, to kind of maximize the returns that we can generate. So, uh, you know, perhaps it's being a bond above where we see losses in a bear case outcome. Uh, and, and that may be further down the capital structure than we'd be comfortable doing in concentrated format um, in a daily liquid vehicle. Got it. So with with this interval fund, it's obviously it's intermittent liquidity, right? It's not totally illiquid. It's not totally liquid. How does it work from a practical standpoint? Is it a monthly liquidity option? Is it quarterly? Sure. So we do uh, we price daily. So an NAV comes out every day. It is available for purchase daily. Redemptions are done quarterly. The uh, SEC minimum uh, is a five percent fund level gate. So 5% of assets must be able to be uh, redeemed at any given quarter. Uh, that's actually voted on by the fund's uh, board of directors. So that can be five, it can be 10. Uh, and, and you can see that number kind of accordion up as, as investor demand may, but uh, it tip and, and as market conditions would allow. Uh, typically you may have an environment where, uh, you know, you're always trying to, to, to do what's the best for fund investors uh, where the market is distressed uh, and and you are generating, I think one of the unique things about structured credit is that you're generating quite a bit of cash flow on a monthly basis uh, through return of principal from the securities that you hold. So oftentimes we can generate organically without having to sell a single security, ample cash flow to pay. Well, and is there is there like an overall blended yield? You know, is, is that published? So I'm also just throwing off income left and right, right? But I, I guess the yield is going, does that just get paid directly to the investors or how does the yield play into this redemption? The yield gets paid as a, as a, as a dividend, just as you would see in, uh, in, in an open-ended or closed-end mutual fund. Got it. So got it. And then as far as the leverage goes, it sounds like that's fairly tightly regulated, but you have the options. You don't have, you don't have to use the leverage, but you can. Can right. that be used for redemptions at all? Or is that- only it could, You could lever up to pay out redemptions. You could borrow, uh, borrow to do that. That's you know philosophically something that it just depends on the market opportunity set that is available at the time. Clearly, you know, if the fund is shrinking, levering into it, it's going to increase uh, the overall leverage of the strategy. Now, it may be an environment where you would rather rebuy your portfolio if you didn't have adequate cash uh, to meet those redemptions. And, and and as a result, you would choose to lever to meet them. Uh, to date, we've not made that decision within our strategy, uh, but it is something that that you could absolutely do. Well, I think it's good though. I think with, with interval funds, it's it's good when there's a little bit of flexibility on the other side where you, you know, not total freedom, not totally free of constraints, but you have a little bit of room to, you know, react to market conditions and uh, pressure valve releases or wh whatever you want to call it. Um, so I think we have a pretty good feel for the product and thank you for walking us through that because I, I think a lot of investors maybe haven't invested in interval funds. Um, and it, you know, they're obviously they're gaining traction for a reason, right? Between this world of liquid investments and totally illiquid private equity, you know, five, seven, 10 year hold stuff. Uh, they're a popular wrapper for a reason. They're gaining traction for a reason, but I want to zoom out, talk a little bit more about the macro picture before we run out of time. So you mentioned, you know, that your team, you anticipate 
obviously we're seeing some disinflation and you even said that we may touch to briefly, but then, you know, that might reverse. We're not going to stay at 2% inflation. So there may be higher sustained inflation going forward. We're also coming off a pretty bad year for stocks and bonds last year, right? Um, you see that reversing for this year? Do you see this year overall being bullish for fixed income and for credit? I do. I do. I think just a natural calming down of volatility. I mean, as we started to move off of the zero bound, the you know, the aggressive nature by which the Fed moved to to tackle inflation just put, I think, a tremendous amount of uncertainty and, and volatility into the market. And just the calming down of that alone as we reach or you know near peak policy uh, here in the first part of the year, I think is very constructive for asset returns, uh, both fixed income and and equity in the short term. And what about you know the recession because to be honestly the whole last three years they they've all they've been so odd they they really have and, and there's been there's so many negative things going on in the economy but at the same time i feel like there's a group of investors professionals maybe even myself among them at times it's almost like we're rooting for a recession and then it sort of feels like maybe it's not gonna come this may be a kind of a muddle through hate to use the phrase soft landing that may be what this is like i don't get me wrong i don't know that the fed knows what they're doing i don't know that policymakers. i i see mistakes being made left and right supply chains all of it believe me i can list a hundred hundred mistakes but nevertheless it kind of seems like things are recovering and we might muddle through so do you think we're in a recession are we are we facing one or is there a chance that we're going to kind of squeeze by somehow yeah, from an investment committee perspective, our base case remains that we will get a, uh, a recession towards the end of this year. You know how much of that feels like one versus how much of it is is a, is more data driven. Uh, I think is is still to be to be determined. Uh, I don't envy those in a policy seat uh, having to you know for, from a central bank perspective having to navigate through this environment. Um, I do think that we will get uh, you know numbers that, that flash recession. We think it will give. Uh, you know, Chairman Powell and, and, and the FOMC, the opportunity to pause, uh, potentially enabling inflation to, to, to start to, to, to start to take back up. I don't think we're heading towards a particularly deep recession uh, one way or the other. Uh, to your point, this would have to go down as the most you know, projected and perhaps uh, you know, televised recession of, uh, of all time as we're heading into it. Uh, so I think there's a lot of uncertainty around what's going to happen. Typically, if everybody's thinking one thing, Exactly. It's not a bad idea to take the other side of it, uh, but every, you know, everything you look at from a data perspective uh, seems to point to us rolling into one at the end of this year. And your investment committee and how, you know how you're predicting that are using the technical. Are we still using the technical definition from like three years ago when a recession was defined as two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth? Now back to the the comment around will it be data driven? Will we actually feel it? I, I think we do have to use the technical definition. Uh, at least, at least as we're talking about it, whether that that leads to uh, you know to, to again some of the same pain and suffering people have experienced in prior ones, we'll see. Uh, but yes, we we I, yeah, I'm sorry, but folks, we need technical definitions. If if economics is supposed to be some sort of science, you know, if this is supposed to be data driven, we need to have common definitions. I'll get off my soapbox in a second, but then those also have to. You know, decade from decade, we need to have this consistent definition of recession. So I'm with you. Let's stick with that definition. And, it, and to your point, though, that 
not every recession is going to look or feel the same. Right. And so, you know, folks can be feeling economic pain, but not technically in a recession or the economy could technically be in a recession, but the labor market could be very strong. Right. These things that they don't always look and behave exactly like the last one. Right. Right. I think everybody you know, is, is guilty of, of fighting the last war, as it were. And, you know, I think you've seen that in a lot of the narrative around housing. I mean, every every day I open up, uh, you know, whether it's The Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg or, or other publications uh, to a negative headline on housing. You know, as, as we dig in, I, I don't think it, it, it computes with what's really going on um, in U.S. housing. But uh, it is I, I think each one will be unique. This will not be like the last one. Uh, I think we can all, all all be certain of that. But that's probably about the only thing we can be certain of. I think we got to end on that one, Colin. It's not going to be like the last one. I think I got to I, I got to give my stamp of approval on that statement. And, and that being said, thank you so much for coming on the show, talking about structured credit, your funds, your offerings, just the macro picture, really insightful stuff. Where can our audience of high net worth investors and advisors go to learn more about Angel Oak Capital Advisors and your investment offerings? Sure. AngelOakCapital.com is a great place to start for, for all of that. Absolutely. And I'll be sure, I'm going to link not only to the website uh, and Colin and Angel Oak's LinkedIn page, but I also want to link to the, the credit fund and because I want in the research, because I want our listeners to be able to access some of this research because it's it's really good. And I, I just like the framing of it. Uh, it really kind of pulled me in and, you know, to the story. I think sometimes writing this kind of content or, or research, you kind of have to put it into a story to make it digestible for a guy like me to really pull me in. And you guys did a really good job on that. So those show notes are always available at altsdb.com slash podcast and will be published as soon as you're listening to this. Colin, thanks again for joining the show today. Thanks so much, Andy. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Oh,